So the time was about 200 years ago. The place was on a plantation down in the West Indies. There was a slave there who had originally come from Africa. And while he was there on the plantation, he converted to Christianity. And consequently, he became singularly valuable to the plantation and his master. He uh, became someone who was very hardworking, very diligent, uh, just exemplary as a worker. He was also someone who, who came to have a certain uh, notoriety as being trustworthy. He was just completely honest and just you could leave things in his hands. And so that's actually what happened. He got more and more kind of control over what was going on uh, on the plantation, just kind of was raised up there uh, to, to be over the operations. So that at a certain point, they, you know, things were going so well there, they, they needed to expand. So the master sent this slave to the slave market and said, we need to get more slaves. I want you to pick out 20 more slaves for us for this plantation. And uh, he sent him ahead to do that. So this, this guy did, and, you know, he picked out, uh, you know, these, these guys to bring back, uh, strong guys that would, would be good workers. But there was one person in the people that he chose that was this old African guy, kind of decrepit. But he, he said, this guy, we need to have him. We need to have him back on the plantation. And when the master finally showed up to sort of just kind of uh, give final approval of what was going on. He, said, he was looking at him, he says, good choices, but he's like, I don't know about this guy. And the guy said, no, he's, he's got to be one of the ones that we take with us. And, I, you know, the master's like, I don't know about him, you know, and so they got into an argument about this. This is a, this is a really strange story, isn't it? <laughs> it really happened. So they're arguing about this. This guy just kept insisting that this old, old guy needed to be the, one of the ones they bought kept insisting on it. Finally, you know, the, the slave dealer actually heard them arguing, came over to them and said, look, whatever, you know, you're taking all of these, you're, you're making this big purchase, you're taking all of these other guys, I'll just throw this other guy in for free, you don't have to pay for him. And so that kind of resolved the argument, back to the plantation they went. And what happened in the days and months after that is that this this uh, kind of elevated slave who basically had run of the place, he, he started taking care of this old guy. Wasn't actually good for much work, but he would feed him and care for him. He would carry him out into the sun when, when he was cold. And when he was too hot, he would carry him in under the shade of a coconut tree. Even, even had him sleep in his own quarters. Finally, the, the master was like, Okay, I, I know the end of this story. He goes up to the guy, to this slave, and he says, all right, I figured it out. I know why we had to take him. He's your father, isn't he? And you needed to take care of him. I, it's okay, I just wanted to understand. I got to know what you're doing here. The guy said, no, master. No, master. He's not my father. He said, okay, wait a second. He's, he's like uh, some kind of relative. Like Maybe he's your uncle. And you felt like you needed to take care of him. That's what was going on, right? No, he wasn't a relative. So the master said, I do not get this. What is going on here? How come you're taking care, care of him as if he were? 
The guy said, we did know each other back in Africa. This was actually the man who knocked me over the head and sold me to the slave traders. This is my enemy. But Jesus says to me, when your enemy is hungry, feed him. When he is thirsty, give him drink. Now, friends, that is an instance of extraordinary forgiveness. Can you imagine? Can you imagine taking someone who turned your life into slavery and treating him that way to care for him? Can you imagine that? I mean, this guy was a slave, but what freedom. Please stand with me as we read a verse from Colossians chapter 3, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I didn't ask them to print this uh, verse 12. I'm going to read verse 12 as well uh, to you. But uh, we're just reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Endure one another. If one has a complaint against another, freely forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also you forgive. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. So we, we tend to develop bitterness in our hearts. Uh, let, let me just tell you that this sermon today, uh, I'm preaching for myself. This is a sermon to me today. Um, you know... When we started this book, and Darren said we're going to do Colossians, I went through uh, and read through the book, and and I saw this passage. I knew I needed to focus on it. And if you all want to listen in as I preach to myself, and it helps you in some way, great, great news. But this is really about my own temptation to bitterness. Because, you know, we can have bitterness, and it's not apparent to other people. A lot of times people can have bitterness and it's not obvious to other people because it, it's, it's easily put into a compartment. We put it into a compartment and it's sealed off and you could be quite, you know, fine, quite functional. And it only comes up if a certain issue comes up or a certain person comes in, then it kind of releases this vitriol, like something coming out of a wound. So it's not easily told, but you can tell if you're bitter. I can tell if I'm bitter. It's easy, actually. You want to know how? If there has been someone who offends me, and I do not desire, I no longer desire this person's prosperity, that's unforgiveness. Now, prosperity can mean different things. To desire someone's prosperity doesn't mean you trust them. It doesn't mean you want them to continue in certain ways. What I mean is God's prosperity for them. That is, you no longer want that person's good. 
That's bitterness. That's unforgiveness. And living with bitterness is kind of like, oh, man, you know how... You know how when you run your car, you need to put gasoline in it, of course, and we're all very good at looking at the dial and seeing when the gas goes down, right? We put in more gas. But you know, your car needs oil, too, to run, right? You know that, right? You figure that out. But some of us aren't as good as checking the dipstick. We have to check the dipstick every once in a while to know if our oil level's okay, you know, because you're, you might develop a leak in your engine or you might be burning oil. And if, it, if your oil gets down, you start running. You can run the engine without oil. It'll wreck the engine. How many of you, let me just have a show of hands. You can be honest. How many of you have ever kind of run your car down, not paying attention to the oil level, and it caused, oh, okay, a couple of people? I'm giving you some time to think about it. So, uh, Chrissy, let me ask you, did, you, did the car end up, um, you know, the engine uh, choke up, or did it? Breakdown. You wrecked your whole engine. Where did you break down? In Iowa. In Iowa. See, that's what usually happens. So living with bitterness <laughs> is like running your engine down without any oil in it. And now I just have to ask you, are you a bitter person? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But this is what it's like. You, you, you run the gears of your life. You grind them together. And eventually there's a breakdown, probably even like in Iowa, something like that. Not where you want to break down. But is there that person? Is there that person? Maybe that person that might come to your mind is no longer in your life. And maybe that's a mercy. Maybe God removed that person from our lives, and that was a mercy to us. Or maybe that person is still in our lives, someone we can't avoid. You know, the, one of the biggest effects of this coronavirus quarantines that, that we have going on, one of the, people don't talk about this, but what I see is one of the biggest effects, if not the biggest effects, is that you can avoid people, you can avoid relationships you, you get a pass on them. You just don't have to deal with people if you don't want to. That's what I see, one of the biggest effects. But whether this person is still in your life or whether this person is not in your life, it doesn't seem to matter, does it? In terms of unforgiveness in our hearts. To not deal, address bitterness, it will eat out your life. So I could speak a long time on the kind of consequences, different, different repercussions of unforgiveness in our hearts this morning. I could do that. I'm not going to because it's not really what the passage is about. The passage doesn't actually bring that up. The, what the passage talks about is how to forgive. And so that's what I want to spend time with you this morning talking about. How to actually forgive. That's all. Because in verse 13 that we're looking at, if you have it there, Paul's instruction, you could see, it's, it's as unconditional as it is direct and plain. You forgive as you have been forgiven. That's the way. That's always the way. You forgive as you have been forgiven. And the word he uses for forgive, it's not, a, it's not the common word for forgive, that that. It's, it's actually a word that has within it the word grace, charis. 
Because he's emphasizing the freedom of forgiving. And the freedom that comes in forgiving, like in that plantation slave's heart. How to forgive. This is the way. You forgive as you've been forgiven. Well, you say, where, where was I forgiven? Back in chapter 1. If you actually go back to what Paul says in the same verse, actually, verse 13 and verse 14, that's where Paul lays this out. He says, you know, you, you, if you're in Christ, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness. And in him, you have redemption. And if that's too big a word, you know, I'll define it for you. He says, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, one of the essence of your redemption, the essence of your redemption is forgiveness of sins. So if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, this is the most important thing about your life, really, that you are forgiven. The most important thing. And this is what powers it. It's also the most, the most useful thing about your life <laughs> for situations such as these. So Paul's giving us this principle of tying our forgiveness to forgiving. And, you know, Paul's not, this is not his idea. Paul's not being original here. He actually got this from Jesus Christ. Jesus taught this way, like in Matthew 18. It's repeated this principle in different places in the New Testament. Ephesians 4 is another place. Actually, in the Lord's Prayer, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach, uh, teach them how to pray, Jesus said, make sure you, you, you have this principle of tying your forgiveness to forgiving. So this is the way, friends. This is the way. So this is all we're going to do today. I want to give you three steps to enact Verse 13, in your heart. Three steps, okay, to make this a reality for us. I wish I could stand here and say, these are three simple steps, you know, three simple, easy steps, you know. <laughs> it's not simple. These are not simple steps. They're not easy. But they are powerful. They're effective for bringing us to a bitter-free state. So what are they? Step number one. Step number one. Dwell in the truth that God likes me. Dwell in the truth that God likes me. You know, I read verse 12 there at the beginning because I, um, I, wanted, because I see Paul was setting us up for what he wanted to tell us to do in verse 13. And in verse 12, he tells us, he says, you are God's chosen. God chose you. If you find that you've been able to believe in Christ, it's because he chose you. you he chose you. And not others. In some way, you are special to him. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm special. Well, some reason, for some reason, he feels special about you. You are chosen. You are holy says Paul in verse 12. Holy, you are set apart for him. You are beloved, he says. You know, in other words, what he's trying to say is, he likes you. <laughs> God likes you. You have a thing with God. It's very important to dwell in that truth 
in verse 12, before you get to verse 13. That's what he's trying to get us to do, to dwell in that truth. You know, I love uh, Steve Brown, a preacher and author, Bible teacher down south. I love the way he puts it. The way he says it, especially when he's talking to his critics, he says, well, you know, God is rather fond of me. He says it with a very deep voice. He says, God is rather fond of me, you know. So it's much more convincing, actually, when he says it. That's, that's the way he puts it. He's right. You know, if you're in Christ, God is rather fond of you. And when you know that, it, it puts you in a place where you, you, no one can touch you, really. No one can touch your status. It's like having, it's like having I was just reading Deuteronomy 32, actually, this week. God is jealous over his people with a good kind of jealousy, you know, like the jealousy of an angry boyfriend, you know, that should be angry. That's the good kind. That's what God has for you because he likes you. So this is the important thing to, to dwell in step number one. Step number two Step number two, name the sin against me. Name the sin against me. This is actually hard work. Many Christians seem to think that, you know, forgiveness is just a matter of smoothing things over. It's just like, you know, don't just make it so people aren't angry, right? And just kind of make it so things are, are smooth and calm. That's not forgiveness. No. Forgiveness requires this step. Naming the sin. Be particular about it. Now, this is, this is not fun. This is hard work, but it's necessary work. You need to be willing to do this with God. But you don't do it alone. Because the Holy Spirit will groan with you if you allow yourself to groan. You allow, you allow yourself to face what really makes you angry or what really makes you upset in the situation. Right? The Holy Spirit will groan with you in that. But you have to be particular. You have to name it. You have to kneel down with God and face what it is that really makes you angry or upset. Don't just try to get rid of the anger, but explore it with him. Be willing to say, and he's okay with this. Be willing to say and explore with God to the point where you can say, you know, this is what really galled me about what this person did. This is what really upsets me about it. Be able to get to that place with him. Because no sin against you can be forgiven unless it's named. So step number one, dwell in the truth that God likes me. Step number two, name the offense against me. Be particular about it. And step number three, hold the offender's sin against my own sin. Hold the offender's sin against my own sin. Of course, not my sin if it's your, if it's your offense. <laughs> it's your sin against it. Every sin that I hold against someone, I have to place against my sin. That might take a while to do. Give it some time. Give it a few times, actually. 
But we got to hold ourselves there. And the Holy Spirit, again, will help us in this. You know, it's amazing what Holy Spirit can find in my past if I give him the opportunity to bring back to me my life and what I've done. Maybe write it down. You know, some of you, are, I know you get upset because you thought, well, you know, I thought I forgave this person. And now it's several months later and I'm angry again. How did that happen? I thought I forgave them. Well, you probably did forgive them. You're just seeing that you need to forgive them again. You need to create a wagon rut in your heart, in your mind. And so it's good to write these things down. You could go back to them and revisit them. You need to enter into your own forgiveness once again. Where I, where I revisit how I have failed God, how I've trampled on his standards, how there have been repercussions, there have been effects of my doing that. And yet, and yet I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven for those things. All right, so I know some of you, you know, you're thinking about these things, you probably have an objection. I'm probably thinking, yeah, but I never did what this person did against me. <laughs> and, you know, I never did anything as, as bad as that. Well, you know, maybe not this, to the same degree, but what we, what we want to think about is, do I have that sin inside of me? Like, maybe you, uh, you never murdered anybody, but have you had hatred in your heart for someone? So that if you are alone with that person with a gun in your hand and there were no other repercussions and under different circumstances, could you have pulled the trigger? I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe... Uh, this person stole from you. Let's just take that. Suppose somebody stole from you and you've never even shoplifted in your life. Well, okay. Maybe you've never even shoplifted. But have you ever stolen what belongs to God? Or, or perhaps you've been betrayed. And maybe you're generally a loyal person. So I would never do that. Okay, so maybe you, you're generally a loyal person. But have you ever betrayed God? This is the way we need to think. Are there other sins maybe that you might consider as bad or worse in your heart? You need to spend time thinking with God this way. Let him illuminate it. This is not fun. This is not fun to do. It's hard work. But it is possible. And it is the command. And ultimately, friends, it leads to freedom. Ultimately, that's where it brings us. Because then every offense becomes an opportunity to revisit my salvation. Every sin becomes that call, even really a call, to revisit how I have been forgiven. And remember, chapter 1, this is redemption. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins, not just my sins, but other sins as well. Got to hold ourselves there. 
until at last I desire my offender's good fortune. I desire that person's good. I'm no longer having daydreams about that person's embarrassment, you know, or that person's ultimate downfall. <laughs> no, I want their good. I want God's good for them. All right. So let me read your minds here. Let me do a little mind reading. I know you're sitting there. Some of you, you're thinking, stop right there, preacher man, pastor, pastor Sam. You think you know so much. You don't know what that person did to me. You don't get it. You don't understand how that person hurt me. You have no idea. You know, I think, I think I have some idea. I think I have some idea. Because I've lived. <laughs> I've lived with you in this world, you know. I think I have some idea. But you know what? You're right. You're right. If you're thinking that, I, maybe I don't know. Maybe something, maybe that person did something to you that I haven't experienced. That could be. And maybe I don't completely understand. I don't really understand all of what your pain is. Maybe I don't. But you know, even in extreme cases, even in when, when we're talking about someone causing something that causes trauma to you, even in those cases, this is still the way way we're talking about. Maybe it needs more than these three steps, but not less. Not less than that. And, you know, the example that I can turn to, and I, I really do love to turn, I'm so grateful for her that I can turn to this example because she has given it to us, all of us publicly, is the example of Rachel Den Hollander. Now, if you don't know that name or remember that name, Rachel Den Hollander was the woman who originally stood up and was willing to accuse Larry Nasser, the Olympic gymnast coach, of molesting her. Because she was molested as a young gymnast, along with countless other young girls. And Rachel was the first to come out publicly and accuse Nasser. And that's what started the whole thing because she had the courage and the willingness to step up there. That's what started the whole thing that resulted in a certain amount of justice against this man. And, and it came to the point where there was this trial and the judge in that trial allowed her to, to actually make a statement against Nasser. And if you've never heard this statement or never read it, it's incredible. Let me just quote you something that she said while she was making this statement in the courtroom. Dan Hollander said this, quote, This is what it looks like when institutions create a culture where a predator can flourish unafraid and unabated. And this is what it looks like when people in authority refuse to listen, put friendships in front of truth, fail to create or enforce proper policy, and fail to hold enablers accountable. Unquote. You see what she's doing? 
She's naming the sins. She's naming them. She's being particular. And, you, and it makes you realize that Den Hollander had a lot, a, a number of other people to forgive besides Nasser, although he was the spearhead. And she did. And in her statement, she makes reference to her forgiveness in Christ and points him toward Christ. It's incredible. If you've never actually read this statement or heard it, you can find it online. I think it's on CNN. That, friends, is a stunning example, a stunning public example of forgiveness and these three steps here. Because if there were any situation where the offender's sin is so much worse than anything the, the offended did, it would be this one. And yet she does it in a way that doesn't take away from the heinousness of the sin or the need for prosecution. So even in such an extreme situation, what do we find? Where the offender isn't even asking for forgiveness, this is still the way. And she found it. She, she demonstrated it for us. And that allows her, Den Holler, to do what she does. She's now an activist. She now advocates for situations that need just this kind of justice. So, friends, this does work. I'm holding this out for us because this does work in making us bitter free persons, bringing us into freedom. Do you know why it works? It works because you're getting close to Jesus Christ on the cross. Because this is what Christ did on the cross. He had no sins to put against the sins that were being forgiven. He put all of our sins there. And on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. He offered that freedom to us. And when he was crying that out, he wasn't just crying out against his murderers. He's crying that out for us. Father, forgive them. And the Father did so much so that he wants our benefit now. He wants your prosperity. He wants you to succeed. He wants your good. That's how forgiven we are. That's really what it means to be forgiven. God likes you, wants your good. And that's how completely forgiven we are. So this morning, we are actually going to start this process for, for all of us. We're going to do step one by coming to the communion table. You know, when we come to receive the sacrament, this is what we're doing. We're dwelling in that step one. We're dwelling in the truth that God likes us. When you come up to them, which is what we're about to do, and you take the bread, you take the wine or the grape juice that we have, um, that's what's happening. You're dwelling in that truth, the truth that that plantation slave found, that truth that Den Hollander lived in, the truth that also we can have for ourselves. Come and partake.